This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 10th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Reforming mandatory minimum sentences has taken a first step in the Senate. Aside from dramatically cutting mandatory minimums for many drug crimes, the proposed reform would also end the disparity between previous sentences for crack and cocaine. Molly Gill is with Families Against Mandatory Minimums. We spoke last week. It's been a very good week for sentencing reform in the Senate in Washington. Last week, the Senate Judiciary Committee advanced the Smarter Sentencing Act, which is sponsored by an odd couple, if there ever was one, of Senator Durbin from Illinois, a very um, staunch civil rights defender um, and Democrat, and um, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, who is a darling of the Tea Party. And a former prosecutor. Yes. Uh, So the bill passed the committee by a vote of uh, 13 to 5. Lots of former prosecutors on that committee. And all of them essentially said that these laws have gone too far and it's time to scale it back. What does it do? What does this act do? And what what uh, what's missing? The first thing it does is it cuts most drug mandatory minimum sentences by about half. So it takes your fi- your 10-year sentences down to five years, for example. Um, that's going to save a lot of money at the Department of Justice, um, which is incredibly strapped in terms of budget right now. It's going to downsize the federal prison population. It's going to save taxpayers money. The next thing that it does is it slightly expands an exception to mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenders so that now more low-level, nonviolent, first-time drug offenders can be sentenced below that penalty. And that's a pretty narrow exception, though. Very narrow. It was originally broader. That got actually squeezed down a little bit. And now uh, essentially any kind of uh, violent prior, no matter how small, will come back to, to hit you and you won't be able to get into that exception. Um, The third part of the bill remedies a longstanding injustice. Uh, Back in 2010, Congress fixed an error in the way that crack cocaine crimes were punished. Essentially, they were punished 100 times as harshly as powder cocaine crimes, which was having a disproportionate impact on the African-American community. Well, Congress fixed that back in 2010, but they forgot to go back and fix it for everyone who was already in prison, which is about 8,800 people. So this bill would also remedy that injustice and make sure that all of those people get a chance to go back to court and get a fair shake. So they do have to go back to court. They do. It's not automatic. No one's just going to be getting a reduction and walking out the next day. They've got to petition the court. And there is a possibility that the court could say, no, if a person's been a really dangerous, violent prisoner, uh, their odds are not going to be good for getting out. And then the fourth part of the bill was actually a brand new addition uh, that I think uh, Republicans, Tea Partiers, and anyone who is opposed to big government will find uh, refreshing. And that is what we're calling a crime count. And essentially, this requires the federal government and all federal agencies to go to their codes and their rules and list all of the penalties and regulations that are crimes. And this is a big problem in America. We've talked before about overcriminalization. Um, just that people don't know what is and is not a crime anymore. You could be violating a federal law or regulation and facing potentially criminal penalties, prison time, heavy fines, and you don't even know you're doing it. And a lot of these things are created by administrative agencies without uh, specific legislation deeming them crimes. That's absolutely right. Agencies create rules that carry 
say, zero to six months in prison. You can lose your business. There are other consequences of violating that rule. And that rule may never actually go through the judiciary committees in Congress, which are supposed to be determining whether something should or should not be a crime and what the proper punishment is. So this should this should add up to a fairly long list. I know that I think when you and I talked before that the government or the various federal agencies were asked to come up with a list of uh, crimes under which somebody could be put in prison and they just couldn't do it. Yeah, that actually wasn't even the agencies. That was just uh, Congress requested that the Congressional Research Service do a code of just actual criminal statutes. Forget the rules, just the criminal statutes. And they stopped at 4,500 and came back and said, I'm sorry, we don't really have enough manpower to do this right now. So this crime count is a very good thing. Um, And what it results in is we actually have a very strong bipartisan bill that has something for everybody. It's got mandatory minimum reductions that are going to be good for taxpayers, good for public safety. It's going to get us in line with more reasonable approaches to dealing with drug offenses and drug crimes. It's got a crime count so that we can get a handle on just how big and out of control our federal criminal code has gotten. There's a lot in here for everyone to like. Now, there are instances that still exist or will still exist even if if this were to become law that sort of penalize people with a mandatory minimum for simply deciding you know what, I'm going to take this to trial. I'm going to go to trial. I can prove my innocence. Yeah, that's one of the main arguments in favor of mandatory minimums from prosecutors is that we need these or no one will plead guilty. And essentially, that is how a plea bargain process works. You go to court and they, the prosecutor comes to you and says, plead guilty, or I'm going to charge you with something that carries a 5, 10, 20-year mandatory minimum and sometimes even life without parole. And because of that, 97 percent of people in our system plead guilty. So, you know, this bill does not remove any mandatory minimums. Prosecutors are still going to have those tools. And quite frankly, people are still going to be looking at serious time behind bars. It's still two, five and 10 years. And I don't know about you, but the next two years of my life are incredibly valuable to me. What is driving this push. Uh, when I talked to Julie Stewart with uh, your organization, she, she had said that uh, that Rand Paul was somebody who she considered to be a, a leader on the issue. Uh, what is actually driving both uh, liberal Democrats and these Tea Party Republicans to say that enough's enough with respect to some of this? Well, I think different arguments appeal to different supporters. If you're a a liberal Democrat, this is about fairness. This is about civil rights. This is about how these laws disproportionately impact communities of color, which they do. Uh, If you're a libertarian or a Tea Partier, this is about small government. This is about individual liberty and freedom in a very literal sense. It's also about um, balancing the budget. It's also about being responsible with a very limited set of crime-fighting funding that we have. And the Department of Justice is supporting this bill because um, there is no more money coming to them. And the prison population is getting only bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's filled with mainly nonviolent drug offenders. And that's an expensive burden for that agency to bear. Every dollar they're spending on locking up a nonviolent offender is a dollar they can't be spending on putting cops on the streets, hiring more prosecutors, 
or just a dollar that we could give back to taxpayers. Something we talked about a little bit before we started recording was the idea of of the role of juries when it comes to mandatory minimums. And I, I, I found a little bit of what you said pretty surprising and galling. Sure. Most people don't know that when you serve on a jury, you are not instructed as to what the potential sentence will be if you vote to convict the person. And that includes you won't be told what the mandatory minimum sentence is if the person is convicted. And, you know, there's a real concern about uh, juries just convicting people thinking, oh, well, you know, it's a nonviolent drug crime. He probably won't be punished that harshly. And then sometimes you go back afterwards and talk to the jurors and say, did you know that that defendant you just convicted is now going to do 20 years mandatory in prison without parole? And jurors are shocked. So they're they're making these um, decisions about convictions without all the information that perhaps they need to do that job correctly. Is that changing? No, there's not really much of a a movement to change that. There are judges um, who have written about this and been very, very upset about it and have tried to instruct juries. And then their decisions, uh, if they do instruct juries, get struck down on appeal. What have states done in this area over the past 10 years? Well, states across the country have been reforming their mandatory minimum sentencing laws, particularly for drug offenses. Some states have been uh, repealing them outright. Um, Some states have just been reducing them slightly, and they're really starting to see the benefits of it. They're seeing smaller prison populations, uh, smaller prison budgets. They're saving money. Uh, They're also investing in wiser choices. You know, prison is not the solution for everything. It's just one possible solution for crime. And states are finding that there are cheaper alternatives that are actually more effective. Uh, If you treat a drug offender, guess what? They get sober, they don't go back to prison, they stop committing other crimes, and they become part of the community and are able to live productive lives. And drug treatment is a lot cheaper than incarceration. Molly Gill is with Families Against Mandatory Minimums. You can read more on criminal justice reform at our website, cato.org.